Today's show is sponsored by Policy Genius. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. Find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. Today's show is also sponsored by Noom. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com slash real life. Hey guys, welcome to the Real Life Podcast, where we talk about exactly that every single week, real life, which means some episodes might be about a fight we just had, some episodes might be about potty training since we have two toddlers, and some might be about eschatological realism because I love thinking and talking about deep theological things, and maybe we'll talk about all three of those in one episode. But we hope the show feels like hanging out in our living room with us, drinking a cup of coffee as we discuss faith and family and culture and Jesus. Me and my lovely wife, Alyssa, are your hosts, and don't hesitate to hit us up or reach out on social media to say hi or comment on this week's episode. Enjoy. Hey guys, just a quick reminder that these last two weeks, last week and this week, we are doing a a special little edition of two chapters from To Hell with the Hustle. It's been such a fun ride. Your guys' encouragement has been amazing and the book's been doing so well because of your guys' support. And so just to celebrate, I wanted to put two of my favorite chapters here on the podcast and I hope they're encouragement to you guys. Chapter eight, empathy. Daryl Davis is a blues musician and he's black. Now that matters because his hobby, as he calls it, is to actively seek out white supremacists, including current and former Ku Klux Klan members. Over three decades while traveling as a musician, he says he's, quote, accidentally persuaded around 200 of them to completely abandon the KKK and has deconverted them from their racism. He says he doesn't set out to convert anyone or get in any arguments or even talk much at all. He simply listens and empathizes and only asks one question. How can you hate me when you don't even know me? He then demands through love and a shared table that they look at him eye to eye and empathize with him. We can't caricature someone who has come close to us in conversations or at our dinner table. And it's awfully hard to hate someone that way too. But that's what empathy does. It draws us close when we'd rather be far. It pulls us in when we don't want to care, and it focuses when we'd rather not pay attention. It's the heartbeat of us as humans, storytelling, understanding and listening to other people's stories. Now, this isn't to say everyone's point of view is equally valid or worthy. In fact, in many ways, it's the opposite. Daryl was not obligated to enter into so many of those KKK members' lives, but he decided to out of love. We are not forced because the minute we are, it's no longer love. But Daryl was willing to, and that's a skill or a superpower we all need to recover because the internet wants to pull us farther apart. So we need the thing that pulls us closer together, which is empathy. Building a society. A few decades before the American Revolution, a peculiar trend started to show up among many Americans. The promise of the West during that time was that you were living in history. This is how humanity and government and community should be structured because it's far superior to anything else. The prevailing sentiment was that pride in finally achieving the zenith of what we had worked thousands of years for, civilization. This is as good as it gets. But then something strange started to happen. 
People who are outside the culture, namely Native Americans, didn't see the Western American way as that attractive, and the Western American people started to actually get drawn into the Native American life. Benjamin Franklin started to notice this and wrote to a friend in 1753, quote, when an Indian child has been brought up among us, taught our language, and habituated to our customs, yet if he goes to see his relations and makes one Indian ramble with them, there is no persuading him to ever return. Apparently, Native Americans didn't think Western culture was as awesome as we were claiming. It had been founded on the promise that this moment was the zenith of all of history and taking us into a new age, but outsiders continually said, no, I'm good. Franklin also noticed the opposite problem, quote, those ransomed by their friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail with them to stay among the English, yet in a short time they become disgusted with our manner of life and take the first good opportunity to escaping into the woods again. English people would literally be captured by Native Americans, and if they were ever recovered or ransomed back into English society, there was a noticeable pattern of them hating it and being disgusted by Western life. They wanted to go back to tribal life. And we are not just talking about Stockholm Syndrome. Children didn't want to return to their original families. Adults wished to stay after they were captured. Some men were never captured, but simply walked off into the tree line and gave up on the West, never to come home again. As Sebastian Younger in his brilliant book, Tribe, said, quote, the frontier was full of men who joined Indian tribes, married Indian women, and lived their lives completely outside of Western civilization. What do you do when you're building a society greater than anything the world has ever seen and there are people who don't want it? Can you really say it's that great? Younger notes that the reluctance for groups of white men to leave their tribes, even when released, quote, raised awkward questions about the superiority of Western society. It's an indictment right on its face. If this new democracy and Western world and worldview are the best things in sliced bread, why do so many people reject it? While we can find thousands of examples of this happening in the historical record, it seemed not even one Native American wished to stay within Western civilization and do the opposite. This is because we were created for tribes. No matter how hard we try to escape them, we find them somewhere, in either a cheap or authentic way. But in the West, the individualized self is the highest goal in our society. And what usually stands in the way of the full realization of the self? Other people, other groups, and other tribes. So we throw them off. We detach from our neighborhoods. We move frequently, never rooted, and never talking to the person who lived 50 feet from us for years. Or we detach from our jobs. Find me someone of the millennial generation who actually thinks it's a good idea to have the same job for 40 years, working alongside the same people. Or we detach from religion, because who needs ancient meaning and anchoring in our creator who is full of love and grace? It sounds so archaic, right? I'd rather be, quote, free and give my allegiance to something much more trivial and ruthless, like pleasure-seeking or my workplace identity. And so what do we do instead? We start trying to find people who look like us, talk like us, dress like us, act like us, and believe what we believe. But here's the problem. We live in a society where for the first time we can actually achieve that. There aren't any roadblocks. You're a progressive, liberal, white person? Well, get out of Oklahoma City and move to Seattle. And if you were that person with a little extra dash of spunk, well then move to Portland. Or you like guns and the American flag? Move to Texas. 
You think Republicans are all that's wrong in the world and an evil to be rid of, then how about only following democratic voices on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram? In short, we hate each other and we want more of ourselves. So we gather around or move towards or follow online people who are like us, which in a weird way is actually just worshiping ourselves. We believe we are God and only want to be surrounded by others created in our image. Before the internet and detachment of communities, jobs, and religion, we might have had certain beliefs, but we couldn't fully escape the people we didn't like or who we disagreed with. They were our managers at work, our friends at church, our neighbors. But if we've retreated to our echo chambers, we need to realize that it's killing us. As much as we want to escape tribes, we only create a vacuum where life isn't as sustainable or rich or meaningful. We leave the tribes that actually cost us something. Instead of attaching to each other, we find pseudo-tribes that give us a blessing without the hard work or responsibility it used to take to get us there. Hey guys, I want to take a break and tell you about one of this week's sponsors, and that is Policy Genius. As you know, guys, we're in 2020 now, which feels like we're in the future. A lot of people talking about the future, and a lot of predictions, especially from Back to the Future, did not come true. Teleporting, flying cars, all these different types of things everyone thought from different science fiction things were going to come true, but they didn't because we tend to get the future wrong. But like Policy Genius says, we should get life insurance right, and that's where Policy Genius can help. It's one thing we don't need to get wrong. So, and if you don't know Policy Genius, what they do is they basically make finding the right life insurance a breeze. So in minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. And you can even save like $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. So once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy. They can also help you find the right home and auto insurance and disability insurance. So if your science fiction dreams for 2020 still haven't become science fact, <laughs> don't get discouraged. Get life insurance. Uh, it takes just a few minutes to find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. So again, Policy Genius, we always get the future wrong. Better get life insurance right. The Empathy Killer. I like to call Facebook the Empathy Killing Machine, or EKM for short, because of all the dehumanization that happens there. It's a perfect blend of desensitization and information overload. I can scroll past a story of the horrific atrocities happening to children and adults in Syria right now, and then right after to some weird plastic body wrap thing my friend is selling. It's jarring to say the least. But it's also an exercise in distraction. It stirs up false empathy in a way that makes us feel satisfied. I mean, how many videos of dogs finding their owners after a flood, Marines surprising their kids, or brand new cars being given to people who can't afford them do we need before we realize we might be wasting our emotion on internet moments instead of where it's really needed? It's not only desensitizing, it's dehumanizing. Our entire essence is wrapped up in a little pixelated profile picture. We only like things we want to like and curate the things we want to see, further creating and hardening our ability to never have to see things we don't want to see or disagree with. And when we do, we go on the attack. If I post something about partnering with a nonprofit organization to help children in underdeveloped countries get access to clean water, a good education, and proper medical care, guess what? Crickets. No comments. No likes. But if I post about how our current culture sees children as consumption and draining agents when only 100 years ago that was never the case, then the post goes crazy, even if it was written in kindness and gentleness. People reply in an offended tone, well, you just wait a minute right there. Now, why is that? Maybe because no one is sensitive about children overseas, 
But if someone talks about our own children, if someone's post gives people something to consider about their own family, something that is empirically obvious and researchable, well, people are deeply sensitive on that front. But here's the more insidious and harmful thing happening under the surface. The very model technology companies use to measure where we spend our time is toxic. It is built on the premise of only promoting posts that get strong reactions. Facebook doesn't care if those posts include misinformation or wrong or hurtful content. Facebook just cares that it gets a visceral, emotional response. We are preyed on by corporations who sometimes understand our biology and creatureliness more than churches do. We are story creatures. We are emotional beings, and we are moved by how we feel about something, whether we like it or not. And that impulse has been latched onto so a select few companies can make trillions of dollars. An emotional reaction from us might mean engagement. And engagement means eyeballs and attention. And eyeballs and attention are the currency of the world. But in letting our eyeballs be bought, we are giving over our empathy at the same time. We are changing, and something is changing in us. Here's the unprecedented thing about our culture today that has to be reckoned with. Everything you read and see online is curated from an algorithm based on exactly what you want to see, not on what someone else sees. That's why you see different news stories on Facebook than your friend. You get on your news app and see a different front page than your parents. Now, not long ago, the newspaper was the primary source of news, and it was delivered to most people's doorsteps every day. Now, imagine getting up in the morning, getting your coffee, heading to the porch, and finding the newspaper. But it's different from the one your next-door neighbor got. And then imagine both of your newspapers are different from the person across the street. Then imagine a block over, another neighbor got a newspaper that seems to directly contradict all the news you read in yours that morning. And that's how information and news works in our internet age. It's a pretty simple formula because our eyes are worth money. Internet search engines want to create products and services that keep our attention and to keep us there longer. They give us what we want to see. We have computers sophisticated enough to do exactly that for every person on the planet. We live in a culture drunk on choice, preference, wants, and desires. We want what we want, exactly how we want it, and when we want it. We don't have to submit to what the actual news is. We can go just find the news we want. This is gasoline on the fire because it breaks us up into tiny tribes, and then we yell at each other online. Since we're not engaging with actual people but with technology, we don't have to disagree in a thoughtful and relationship-keeping way because the relationship doesn't matter. The disagreement can be toxic, mean, and harsh. It's clear. It's a gloves-off culture we are now living in, which is pretty much the opposite of empathy. Us versus them. Back in 1947, the first television camera was placed in the House chambers of the United States Congress. In 1979, the first televised proceedings were shown on C-SPAN and PBS. It was the first time in history people could watch what was actually going on in Congress with their own eyes on their own TV. These televised proceedings happened without much fanfare. The Congress people didn't really bat an eye, except for one freshly minted congressman who saw it differently, Newt Gingrich. He started invoking a special order, a quote, rule in the House that at the close of business and any day, any member can claim the floor for any reason they want for pretty much any amount of time they want. So he started claiming these special orders at 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. when literally no one else was in the chamber. All the other members of the House were at home, sleeping, working late, or having drinks with friends. 
But Gingrich wasn't speaking to the House members. He knew he was speaking to America. Because before this, the House was consumed with extremely tedious, boring, and dry material. Congressmen and women, will you please direct your attention to chart A, showing the correlation between farm subsidies and the implications for our budget. But Gingrich, however, started talking to America. Not about charts, but about politics and anger and frustration and the corruption of the Democratic Party. It was a late-night political pundit show before those were even a thing. It was us versus them. And in many ways, it worked. Gingrich, not by himself, but certainly because of his vision and rhetoric, was able to boot the previous Speaker of the House on ethics charges, he resigned, regain control of the House as a Republican majority that had been Democratic for more than two decades, and later himself become Speaker of the House. He started a coup and achieved his goals. But by stirring up emotion, not reason, and by pandering to fear, not love, by not working with the other side, but making sure everyone knew that to win you had to hate the other side. And this is how we arrived at our current political climate, where there's no need to play nice or be coy because it's an all-out war. Take Frank Rich, a prominent leftist essayist, and his article in New York Magazine titled, quote, No Sympathy for the Hillbilly. It's essentially an argument against being nice or kind or empathetic and saying, if you are angry at the people who voted for Trump, hang on to that anger and weaponize it. It's a classic us versus them manifesto, telling us essentially, quote, we will never get to where we want until we get rid of or at least defeat those we don't like. With each passing year, we are asking politics to carry even more of our core identity. We are asking it to create more meaning and asking it to give us a sense of belonging. We are asking for more return on the investment, but we are playing a backwards game. As Andrew Sullivan so brilliantly noted, we are asking politics to do too much. We are created for tribes, but none of us realize that we're asking politics to fill the gap. He goes on in a long quote to say, Successful modern democracies do not abolish this feeling, they co-opt it. Healthy tribalism endures in civil society in benign and overlapping ways. We find a sense of belonging, of unconditional pride, in our neighborhood and community, in our ethnic and social identities and their rituals, and among our fellow enthusiasts. These are hip-hop and country music tribes, bros, nerds, wasps, deadheads and Packer fans, Facebook groups. Yes, technology upends some tribes and enables new ones. And then, most critically, there is the Uber tribe that constitutes the nation-state, a mega-tribe that unites a country around shared national rituals, symbols, music, history, mythology, and events that forms the core unit of belonging that makes a national democracy possible. None of this is a problem, he says. Tribalism only destabilizes a democracy when it calcifies into something bigger and more intense than our smaller multiple loyalties, when it rivals our attachment to the nation as a whole, and when it turns rival tribes into enemies. And the most significant fact about American tribalism today is that all three of these characteristics now apply to our political parties, corrupting and even threatening our system of government. It's snowballing towards overhyped tribalism and unmeasurable and catastrophic societal effects. We need to be the people of God who provide a prophetic witness to our culture, an alternative to the people who just jump into the comment section of your aunt's post to give snarky, sarcastic, rude, judgmental, unempathetic, and uncompassionate opinions. Things I see from Christians every single day on the internet and things that are frankly unbecoming of us as the people of God. 
We do know that when Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, that we will give an account for everything we ever say, he meant what we type and post on the internet too, right? But we drink the same poison, so all we can offer is the same kind of toxic communication. What we mean. The way most people communicate online today is toxic and dehumanizing. It's honestly killing many of us from the inside out. And I think there's one question that can really save us all right now. It's so simple, but it changes everything. Or at least it has worked for me over the years. Are you ready for it? It's really world-changing, so watch out. Before going crazy and going on attack mode, just ask this simple question. Well, what do you mean by that? It's sad, but online platforms are clearly set up to reward sharper and more polarizing posts. So as followers of Jesus, we especially have to lean into the tension and give people the most gracious interpretation of their words. And maybe this is because I felt so shamed and hurt seven years ago over a video where 90% of the very intense critique would not have needed to be written if they would have first asked, hey, Jeff, what did you mean by religion? For example, when someone asks me if I'm a feminist, I like to ask them, well, what do you mean by that? Because the answer is actually a hard yes or a hard no, depending on what they say. Or if someone asks me if I'm political, I ask, well, what do you mean by that? If they say giving full allegiance to a political party in a borderline idolatrous way, the answer is no. But if they say and understand that being a Christian is inherently political because Jesus is king and no one else is and cares for the city deeply, which by the way, the actual definition of politics comes from the Greek word polis, which means of the city, and all earthly powers must submit to him, and that he deeply messes with people's power structures, which is why he was crucified, then the answer is yes. Trying to understand each other should be normal, but sadly it is becoming almost a superpower in our culture to have the ability to really lean into someone's point of view and gain true understanding and nuance first before we respond. Instead, internet culture rewards straw man fallacies times a million. But as followers of Jesus, we really have to check ourselves in how we communicate with others, because frankly, we are killing ourselves over it. So why is tribalism so appealing? I think it's pretty simple. It's easy and it doesn't take a lot of work. Hey guys, I want to take a quick break to tell you about one of this week's sponsors, and that is Noom. You know we love Noom because they're about the right things, because getting in shape doesn't have to be about losing a specific amount of weight or a magic number or anything like that. It's just about building healthier habits, and Noom helps you with that. They even call them non-scale health goals, which I absolutely love, and what more people should be pursuing um, for clarity of mind, for health, for vitality, for all these things, because everyone's different. Noom adjusts to your lifestyle, which is really, really awesome. And I know using it, it just brings me better self-care, better clarity of mind and thinking. And when I'm looking at the right courses and the nutrition and the help on the physical side and the food side, it feels like it just gets me into a really, really, really good spot that I absolutely uh, love. Now, again, if you don't know Noom, they're a habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food and working out and all these different things through personalized courses. It's based in psychology, which is really cool too. So it teaches you why we do the things we do, how to motivate ourselves, what actually works and what doesn't work. Nothing's kind of good or bad or off limits. It's just about building healthier habits. Um, And if you're strapped for time, it's the perfect solution. So again, you don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. So sign up for your trial today at noom.com slash real life. N-O-O-M.com slash real life. Again, what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash real life. Start your trial today. 
fear frenzy. You've probably heard that fear of public speaking is one of the greatest fears in our society. That doesn't come from some random backwoods survey. It actually originated with Chapman University and their now famous Survey of American Fears, which started in 2014. Among others that year were walking alone at night, being victims of identity theft, and being the victim of a random mass shooting. But those are no longer people's greatest fears. It's fascinating how drastically those fears have changed in just a few years. For two years in a row, want to guess what the number one fear has been among surveyed Americans? Coming in at a whopping 74% of those surveyed, saying they were afraid or very afraid, was the fear of corrupt government officials. In fact, the three top fears of 2017 were corrupt government officials, healthcare concerns, and pollution of the environment. And the top 10 included the U.S. being involved in another war, North Korea, and another financial collapse. All highly political and media-centric stories. The professor in charge of the survey noted, we are beginning to see trends that people tend to fear what they are exposed to in the media. Many of the top 10 fears this year can be directly correlated to the top media stories of the past year. Basically, the stories we see in here are whipping us up into a frenzy and fanning the flames of fear. How big will the fire get before it consumes us all? No wonder politics has become so divisive and harsh. Our greatest collective fears are wrapped up in it. Fear is the greatest motivator there is. It's what drives us. It's the tick in the clock of our hearts and minds. I always find it compelling that the Apostle John, in his famous section on love in the New Testament, never once mentioned hate. If we were to ask for a knee-jerk reaction to the opposite of love, what would almost all of us say? Hate. But that's not correct. Fear is the thing under the soil giving the hate life and growth. Fear is a deeper, much more insidious motivator. And almost every atrocity in the 20th century, from the Holocaust to the Rwandan genocide, can be traced back to a deeply held fear that was then stoked into hate. We fear the other. Whatever the other is for you, white, black, Republican, Democrat, Sunni, Shiite, Jew and German, Christian or atheist. But we have to dive headfirst into that dark and muddy part of our heart, not put it away, not shy away from it, not run from it. What's down there at the depths? What are we truly afraid of? That someone is going to take something from us? That we are going to lose something? As a Christian, I think of our current climate where many evangelical leaders show blind allegiance and idolatrous bowing to the empire of Trump and political power. But is political power really what we want? Especially as followers of Jesus, we have to ask what we want and we have to ask what we are afraid of. Because here's the thing I think makes us distinct from others. We have absolutely nothing to fear, not even death itself. I mean, what can the world or others do to us? And this is why actually following Jesus is so critical compared to just extracting Christian truths to adapt to our lives. If we consider how Jesus actually walked and looked at his ethos as he went about his life, we find someone who is afraid of no one and no thing. And this prevented knee-jerk reactions prevented him from picking up a sword and taking down Rome. And it made it possible for empathy to radiate from his very being because there was actually room for it. There was nothing to be afraid of. All authority on heaven and on earth had been given to him. He had legions of angels at his disposal. He had divine representation and authority in himself. And yet he chose to willingly die for others, namely his enemies. 
and that changed the world. What's interesting is if Jesus would have actually taken up the sword and tried to jockey for power or take things into his own hands, there'd be no Christianity. There might have been a flash in the pan, but no movement that turned the world upside down, that's for sure. Because only love can do that. Sacrificial, bloody, enemy love. Now, a political party isn't our enemy. A certain political policy isn't our enemy. A person with a different experience or skin color or way of life from ours isn't our enemy. Sin is the enemy. And there's only one thing that has the power to quench the giant that is sin. That is that person and piece of wood raised up outside of the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, dying for his enemies, grasping for nothing. And that breaks cycles, chains, and powers. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're listening to this, ask yourself, why are you afraid? Look at where you get angriest or most uptight, and I bet you'll find your greatest fear. What would it look like to lay down your fears, hate, and weapons and pick up enemy love instead? Empathy, not as some 21st century value that's easy, but the very basis of hard-won, practiced enemy love. In Jesus' worst moment, it's no coincidence that empathy showed up. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Luke 23, 34. This is our singular witness as followers of Jesus, that we are afraid of nothing and have nothing to lose because our very king looked death in the face and defeated it. Death has lost its sting. And so we become part of a tradition that has shown this singular witness of enemy love for thousands of years. From Polycarp, the famous church leader who in AD 155 was told soldiers were coming to arrest and execute him for his faith and decided to make them dinner, to Martin Luther King Jr. and his imprisonment, beatings, and eventual assassination for marching year after year under the banner of enemy love. And here's what I've realized about this in my own heart. The difference between fear and enemy love is a difference of franticness and peace. Fear is frantic. Fear goes at a speed that love does not. Fear is fast. Fear is frantic and it's distracted. But love goes about three miles per hour. Seriously, three miles per hour is actually the average speed of someone who is walking purposefully yet gracefully. And for some reason, I see Jesus walking that speed as well. Just the right speed to intentionally take him somewhere, but also the right speed to be perfectly interrupted. Have you noticed how a lot of Jesus' miracles were not a part of his plan? They happened on his way somewhere else. And so you have to go at a pace that can be interrupted, that can be responsive to the moment in front of you. And when you are going at a pace that is in step with our Lord, don't be surprised if empathy and enemy love show up. Because you can't love someone when you are hustling, and you can't love someone when you're going fast. Just ask my kids if I'm loving them well when I try to get out of the door in two seconds when we're late. But when you say no to the hustle, you can be stopped and you can step into the holy moment of grace because Jesus did it as well. He felt other people's pain, he leaned into their space, he understood their hurt, and he waited and didn't hustle past because he loved.